0: Two.
1: what are we? Yeah, I'm a recording. Recording?
0: Yeah. Uh, I think I have to acknowledge it now. Yeah, who gives a shit? <laughs> Do what the fuck we want here.
1: We don't need to record. Yeah. We don't need to not record. There's nobody undercover here. Wink wink. So yeah. episode eight forty four with the one and only. Roger Williams. Today is Wednesday, June fifteenth, twenty twenty two at five fifty six PM Eastern time. Roger back in the saddle, author of my favorite book, the metamorphosis of prime intellect, which you can get on Amazon or Lulu. I always think Hulu or Lulu, Lulu. costs the same amount of money. Yes. Amazon, Jeff Bezos gets more money. Lulu, Roger gets more money. So you can, you can, I don't know, help Jeff Bezos Alex. become a biologically transcendent space baron, or you can <laughs> give Roger a couple bucks, whichever yes. you want. But Roger, take it away, buddy.
0: So, uh, yeah, so you had uh, your little uh, episode with the brick and the concussion and I had a follow up to my cardiologist uh, had a nuclear stress test, uh, which I saw that you asked about, you know, so they inject a radioactive tracer into your bloodstream and put you in the scanner that maps uh, flow of the, uh, the way that blood is flowing through your heart and then they put you on a treadmill and get your metabolism pumped up to a certain amount. And then they put you back in the scanner and do it again. And the idea is to find out if there are any signs of blockage or anything. And uh, someone close to me actually funked one of these back in December and had to have a stent installed <laughs> um, which is what happened to me eight years ago. So it was basically just to see if there are any danger signs, and I passed it with flying colors. So everything looks good, uh, and that was the last thing that happened in my world. Of course, uh, we spent an episode or two talking about ukraine and not really a lot has been happening in ukraine for the last couple of months it's more been moving chess pieces around the board um ukraine's been holding their own they're taking they've taken uh Advantage of some of the M777s that we sent them, uh, that appears to have strengthened their position a bit. But so far, it's just a lot of back and forth. Nobody's gaining very much territory. Uh, and the people that I listen to, their analysis that is that they think the Ukrainians are waiting until the end of summer uh, when it will be mud season again and they will have more weapons from the Western you know, nations supplying them, and they will probably start a more decisive pushback. Um, but they're not sitting on their laurels. They've they've been uh, whacking away at the invaders, and. Uh, again, the people that I uh, have been listening to have been saying the Ukrainians have been using some really smart strategy. They've been very careful about picking their targets and picking their battles. And the Russians have been very stupid about a lot of the things they've done that they've seemed to be more driven by political goals and the demands to be able to make a claim by this date that we have this mm-hmm. bit of land or, you know, that the, right now, apparently they're trying to claim that they have kerosene oblast in its entirety and so there's uh what is it, for or some i don't know how to pronounce it but there's a city that nobody actually needs it has no military value whatsoever and they're both wailing away at it because if it. if the russians get it then putin can claim that they have the entire oblast and so there's a political thing there
1: that was um, like in the waning days of the nazi <laughs> empire there was actually like a great deal of resources expended on some like super high altitude base camp somewhere in the far east they lost like a ton of guys it was just to raise a flag so they could say like the empire goes from here to here yeah. and it was like yeah they, they all froze to death a
0: lot of countries have done that all of them really yeah
1: i mean we're i'm not, saying that we're not immune i'm saying that from the country who threw a flag on the moon yeah hey these dummies they went to a high altitude we went 200. well
0: also in the whole die on this hill thing came from vietnam when we were doing that over and over again and then yeah. we, would, we would throw a bunch of lives at getting this hot bit of high ground and then not hamburger do anything hill. with yeah. it
1: i remember um, watching that movie with my dad when i was 18 i think it's called hamburger hill mm-hmm. yeah
0: yep and uh so we're uh you know guilty of it too but right now it's the Russia so that's that's the war in Ukraine right now. It's just everyone's you know doing the la- The last really significant thing was probably the sinking of the Moscow, which we talked about.
1: yeah, so. that was like two months ago.
0: But this way, I bought these headphones in January for this podcast, and I think I've used them twice. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, fucking Roger throwing shade. I'm sorry. I, I, I it's, it's- I've always I've always said it's your joint. I am not going to insist that you kick a name off who can possibly build your brand or give you some cachet. I mean, controversy is also always good. So you've you've got to yeah uh, you know, you've got a project going, and I am not. You know, going to stand on you know that, that, and and of course you didn't deliberately give yourself a concussion, so no, would things like that happen. Uh, you know, shit happens. So
1: you know, that's, that's one thing we're always, good. That's one thing I always genuinely appreciate about you, is that you remind me that this is your gig, and that's also something I'm realizing the more and more shows I'm doing is is the the truth behind the statement. You can't please all the people all the time. That's something I'm starting to realize. I'm like,
0: okay. I. Every once uh, in a while, you are going to run across someone who you just cannot get along with. It well, doesn't not
1: even, matter. Not what. even that. Not even that. <laughs> but like, But like guests I get along very well with. I'm realizing mm-hmm. I'm like, this isn't early on in the podcast where I can just have the guest repeat week after week after week. There is such a large swath of guests I have on now that mm-hmm. when I have to kick a guest back two months, i have to explain to this i'm like dude this isn't like personal i'm like i just yeah i'm doing this with 90 other people who have all because like i text with like the majority of my guests i'm like sometimes i'm like you gotta remember there's there's like 500 of y'all i can't (laughs) it's so if i'm like hey can you do one in august it's not like a slight i'm like dude that's the the nearest opening
0: yeah yeah it's and I, I totally understand that. I mean, that's, I that. I've, I've seen what you've been doing and, and you've worked very hard at it. And your priorities seem to be in a very good place as far as what you're trying to do. So uh, I certainly don't want to be getting in your way if, you know, that's, the, you know, if, you know, and it's, it's not that much skin off my nose. If, you know, I was expecting to do a podcast and you text me an hour beforehand and it's like, oh, shit, you know, I just realized i've got another guest or something that's yeah that's cool i appreciate it it's
1: yeah and then or like sunday where i'm like oh god i have on and i have on a a, yeah a a triple alumnus france dr francis boyle oh god i have it i have an eight-hour book i have to get through roger i I gotta run i'm sorry
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and, and also, yeah, we might want to think about uh, standardizing on a day that's not on the weekend because you're going to get a lot of guests who want to do the weekends. I mean, that's, uh, you know, I mean, so we, we were doing Sundays for a long time because you didn't have all this traffic, you know, coming through, but now that you do, you're going to get a lot of guests who are going to want Saturday and Sunday, uh, and probably Friday and well, probably Friday, maybe not so much Monday. Um, but remember when we buried, when we first started doing this, we did uh, we regularly did weekdays. Yeah, you know? uh, yeah. So it's you know I I got to run a little early from work to do it, but it's not that big of a deal. Um, and uh, you know if if that creates less of a collision with your uh, more prominent and you know sure. stature gaining guests, then. Uh,
1: Still no response from Vladimir Putin or Klaus Schwab. You know what? (laughs) Fucking one day I'm going to get him. I also can't get John Hinckley. Even though he's out of jail now. Apparently he's not allowed to do interviews. So that was a little bit of a.
0: Yeah, I think he's going to be under a lot of conditions for the rest of his life as part of his release conditions. Um, They're a little sensitive about people like him.
1: The whole shooting at president, you know.
0: Yeah. And the whole, you know, his family on, he, being friends with the Bush family.
1: <laughs> Neil Bush was going to have <laughs> dinner with the fucking, <laughs> or, sorry, Neil Bush was having dinner with the Hinckley family that night. I mean, these are just funny coincidences. Just definitely, normal people. I mean, Definitely wasn't a sly coup, the former yeah. head of the CIA.
0: I mean, things like that wow. happen every day.
1: Every day. Um, I was going to say John Hinckley writes uh, music now. And uh,
0: yeah, I had heard that.
1: Yeah, he has a YouTube channel. So uh, John Hinckley Junior. is not banned from YouTube, but I am. So I don't know what that says. But uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. so uh, so anyway, uh, I was thinking if you can remember what we were doing the last time we had some curators on, uh, we found out that the curators caused the KT extinction. Mm -hmm. on earth and that they regularly do shit like this when they don't like the path that evolution has taken on a world and uh jay and emma our heroes uh have been getting tours and you know little guidelines about how to be curators since they have been elevated and given curator implants themselves Um, and one of the things they were just shown was a world that's going to probably get hit by an asteroid the next time the curators come around. And they had the bright idea to see if humans could do something a little more elegant. So they contacted one of the most powerful oligarchs on earth in this future of around the year 2160. And uh, knowing that he was a big time hunter and uh, big gamesman, offered him the chance to try and clear this world of its dangerous megafauna so that a species more like us could evolve so that the curators wouldn't have to sterilize the place. And he, he was rather attracted by the idea. So for the next few episodes, we're going to have uh, he and him and his people setting up their operation to uh, see what they can do about the monsters on this world. Uh, and Jay and Emma getting curator lessons, and then we're going to have a little bit of a climactic diversion, awesome. so I, which I hope we can get to tonight because i have been waiting to read you this since February. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> Roger, monologue real quick as I take one last pee before we start recording.
0: Okay, that was quick. Uh, yeah, uh, as Tommy mentioned, if you want like a paper copy of my... Novel, which I don't have here to show you this time. Uh, If you could bother to get it from lulu, l-u-l-u.com instead of Amazon, I get a lot more of the money. The contracts involved that make it available through those channels forbid them from charging you a cheaper price but i get the money that would normally go to jeff bezos if you do that. Uh, as far as ebooks if you want it for your kindle or if you want it in any other electronic version amazon is fine because they are their the uh, publisher of origin anyway so it doesn't make any difference and uh of course there's a lot of other stuff available you can read uh the Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect and just about everything else I've ever written and put online, excuse me, for free at uh, www or just plain local Roger.com on the web. Uh, of course, free means reading it in your browser, you'll see some of those also have links to uh, EPUB versions on Smashwords. They let you set your own price and you can set your price to zero if you would like to get one of those electronic versions. That is also fine with me. That's the way that we set it up. Um, And one of those things that you can read there for free is the curators, which I originally published on Reddit uh, and which I'm in the process of reading to Tommy so that there will be an audio version of it read by the author. Uh, We are currently about halfway through the full text of the whole saga. And uh, I was thinking that we might finish it within uh, another six months or so, but that depends on us having slightly more frequent podcasts than has been possible lately. So I think Tommy needs to get one of them cups that he can keep under the desk.
2: Shut your goddamn (laughs) (laughs) mouth.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, you know, I'm all over the place right now. This is the last episode of the week. I'm uh, actually a little brother's bachelor party that I'm flying oh. out of town for uh, tomorrow. I think, and uh, so naturally, the last episode of the week. I'm always a little bit
0: yeah. All right, uh, so so where's the party? <sighs> Where did you That's buy like, airline tickets? I'm too? actually <laughs> I'm
1: actually not gonna say. <laughs> i'm just realizing more and more as people oh, things
0: things get around
1: well but as the podcast is growing more you kind of get more and more people being like i want to come see you and i'm like "No, yeah thanks for watching but no so <laughs> uh it's in america
0: <laughs> okay that helps yeah <laughs> all right uh i'm going to move my windows around now so i will uh not be looking at you You directly anymore. My beautiful face. I'll have to glance aside from the source material. Okay. So this is the Curator's Book Two Part 18, which uh, will start your Curator's Part 13. That is undoubtedly why it has taken so long for us to bring this podcast to happen. It's part 13. Of course. It's cursed by God.
1: How else would it go, Roger?
0: <laughs> okay. So uh, when last we left our heroes, they had just shown the Red Prince, one of the most powerful oligarchs on Earth after the consolidation of its government, which is another thing our heroes did. That there was some really cool hunting to be had elsewhere in the galaxy. So, about a week after our visit to the world of the condemned giants, we received an invitation from the Red Prince to observe the preparations he was making for the project. We folded over to what turned out to be the giant landed fold ship Nostromo, as it was besieged by a thick cloud of transports coming and going. Red invited us into an office with a modest sign on the door that read Project Terra Nova. Wasn't that Terra Nova series about time travel to the ancient Earth? Sure, but there isn't a lot of source material to draw on for this kind of conflict, and I had to call it something. Your world of dead-end giants doesn't even seem to be indexed. It is, but that index is private to the curators responsible for its level of development. How did you get control of a capital fold ship? I leased it, he said. Had my choice of several, actually. We built more of these things than we really need now during the diaspora. Nostromo is going to be parked on one of the islands or possibly just levitate out at sea. Our first mission will be a full planetary survey so we can make more detailed plans for the main mission, that first phase. The biologists are already here to do a classification and census. I'm laying in the modest weapon supplies until we figure out what works on which targets. Some of the biologists have warned me that Earth's dinos would have been really hard to kill. Eventually, we'll have hunting tourists, but at first it's going to be the pros scoping out the situation. As he spoke, a personnel transport landed outside the office and people started to file out. More scientists, Red said. I think that's my infrastructure crew. How are you recruiting people, Emma asked. Are you kidding? I just tell them what the mission is. Most of them would come along for free, but I'm paying them fair Earth economy wages. It turned out that Red was also leasing two interstellar personnel transports to shuttle between the Nostromo and Earth. A whole fleet of atmospheric transports for moving about on Terra Nova, and he was loading up what he called a modest provisional arsenal suitable for waging a respectable regional war. One of the interstellar personnel transports was returning, so Red invited us to meet it with him. My lead biologist, Red said, and we made informal introductions without Red telling them who we really were. How many people are on your team? I asked as assistants started to unload specimen containers. 86 if Red's gotten all the people we listed to agree to join, the team leader said, as everyone else followed the cargo into the Nostromo. We're putting together a world-class lab, too, he said. That's quite a crew for what amounts to a hunting expedition, Emma said. Well, we have to figure out an entire ecosystem and what separates the target animals from what we're trying to preserve. Red wants us to be ready in case we have to resort to chemical or biological agents, so we have to figure out their biology well enough to target those. Not content to leave it to the hunters? Emma asked Red after he departed. I thought the thrill of the hunt was the main reason you liked this project. Oh, it is, Fred agreed, but I'm also aware that I agreed to a price for that, that I would clear this world of its dead-end megafauna, and I intend to perform that task as agreed, even if it turns out that practical hunting kill rates can't keep up with the birth rate in some niches. We left and agreed to return when the Nostromo was ready to depart for the world which looked like it would be now known as Terra Nova. Meanwhile, we had a meeting scheduled with the curator who was to show us the process by which species were guided through the critical path. The coordinates we had been given led us to an Earth-like world where the local ecology bore a striking resemblance to that of the African savanna, where humans evolved. Our new curator guide had short silver fur, a prehensile tail, and strikingly white bony face. We made our greetings and looked around. Her vocal apparatus wasn't compatible with English, nor ours with her native Clackey dialect, so we communicated via implant to implant links. This looks awfully familiar, I said. It should. I chose to start with this world because it strongly resembles Earth at the time we began watching over your ancestors. There are several arboreal species here which have evolved gripping appendages and fine spatial awareness for navigating tree canopies, all of which are being forced to the ground level as forests retreat. This is one of the situations we watch closely because in the past, it has regularly led to the emergence of critical path species. Follow. We didn't actually walk, but let her guide us in a fold to another location. We were now in what had been the middle distance, 100 meters or so from a group of animals that strongly resembled early primates. In later phases, we will have to be more discreet about our comings and goings and our appearance, but at this point in the development, our presence here doesn't really matter much. We can observe that these animals have a strong social organization, which is also promising for critical path development. They have begun to use as found rocks as weapons, but not to fashion more effective tools or to use fire. We watched for an hour or so as the group interacted, coming and going from the canopy of a single tree. At this point, this world is still on the index of the asteroid stations. We are able to make more frequent and detailed observations, and they can, though. If the promising patterns die out, we will report that to the others, and they will continue to curate this world. If one of these species starts to fashion purpose-made tools or use fire, we will take over full responsibility. We made another full jump to a different group. About a 1,000 kilometers further from the equator, the weather is more variable here. Decline of the forest is more advanced. These larger animals were walking on two legs and living on a cliffside complex of caves. Our biggest worry for this particular world is that none of these species have developed opposable digits, and it is possible that a random common feature of their genetic structure will make some such important trait unlikely to emerge. Would you do genetic engineering if it turned out to be necessary? No. At this stage, it's up to the universe to decide what will happen. If we were to intervene in all of these cases, we would simply end up with a garden full of familiar forms, and that's not what our ancestors wanted. How big is the population? The species we saw earlier number a few tens of thousands. These before us are all of their kind. Species at this stage tend not to be very numerous, and their existence is fragile. It's one reason we check often. We normally visit this world on each solstice and equinox to see how they're adapting. Things can happen fast, not happen at all, or a promising species can be wiped out in a plague or famine. And you don't intervene? We don't interfere. For the future, there is something I must do for you, too. We will end this visit now, but soon we will need to conceal our activities better. I've been told to unlock certain capabilities of your implants. She looked thoughtful, then nodded. You can now control an invisibility shield, which folds light around you. It's not good enough to really conceal you from a trained observer, but it will allow us to move among more developed species than these without making too much of an impact. Emma and I looked at one another. We could feel the new capability. What other abilities do we have that we don't know about? Emma asked. If you don't know about them, you don't have them, our host said. According to the plan that has been worked out for your integration into our work, we've been here long enough. I'll signal you in about a month when we'll be ready to visit a world at the next level. We folded back to Earth, where we startled Quentin by turning invisible. I can still tell you're there, he said warily, but I kind of have to squint, and if I didn't know in advance it was you, I wouldn't know what I was seeing. If I was primitive, I'd probably think you were ghosts. I didn't know you could do that. Neither did we, Emma said, and I really wonder what else we don't know. (coughs) There was a brief discussion in the comments about Oh, invisibility, and I made the comment that invisibility is actually kind of a nothing burger in this series. The important line in that episode was the last one. Okay. Book two, part 19. Less than a week after our appointment with the Critical Path curator, the Nostromo made its way to the world Red was calling Terra Nova, There were 300 people on board for the expedition, with over 50 already at our destination via the personnel carriers. Emma and I went along for the ride with everyone else so as to blend in. There was a flurry of activity as the biologists who had been on the ground transmitted results and conveyed samples to the ship. We've been surveying the smaller species worldwide, one of the biologists told us. We need to see what family distinctions are there, particularly at the biomolecular level. What might have that might allow us to make specific diseases or toxins. Isn't it a bit early to be planning on the worst case scenario, Emma asked? If we need it, we'll need to have the planning already done. I really think those measures will be more necessary with the mid-range animals, which are far more numerous but still fairly powerful. We may be able to do like our own ancestors and get them to flock over the edges of cliffs, but we don't know their behavioral habits very well yet. And some of the smaller megafauna appear to be solitary. The big guys, we will hunt to extinction, and we will even have to figure out how we're going to do that. Red introduced us to a big man who had made himself the very stereotype of the mercenary hunter, dressing in camo and carrying a big knife and a revolver, even on the ship, as if a big carnivore might surprise him in the mess hall without warning. He was friendly, though, and unlike most of the crew, he recognized us instantly queen emma and king jay welcome to terra nova i'm zeke and i have to give the highest respect to the only two humans to ever go into battle in space he said any advice for how to handle it when you're facing off against a mountain-sized fold ship in a lightly built tin can make sure you have the better weapons emma said and the mountain-sized man laughed heartily that's excellent advice i'll be taking it seriously very soon I'd be honored if you two would witness my hunt. I plan to take down the first of the big guys on this ball of mud so that the bio guys can get their samples. Maybe try some barbecue. Guys like him make me want to give the dinos machine guns, Emma mumbled after he had walked off. He didn't even say anything about that little incident where we unified the government and claimed our throne. Well, we know what he cares about, I said. Zeke's hunt was to be quite the spectacle, though. He had outfitted an open-flying sled with a fully automatic Browning M250 caliber machine gun. The sled itself was basically a plate with a gun tripod and a chair for Zeke mounted to it. Wouldn't something with a little protection for you be a good idea? Emma asked him as we viewed it. Going up against a capital fold ship in a tin can wasn't much fun. I've seen estimates of these guys bite for Zeke said. I'd rather have a clear shot than a cage that bad boy can crush. Scouts located a promising target, and the observation craft formed a distant circle before Kizik moved in. These were just bigger floating plates, but we were high enough to be out of range of any of the animals, and Red had supplied us all with binoculars. They were autofocus, had active image stabilization, built-in rangefinder, and target-sized reticules, but they were old school in that the light passed directly from the target through a couple of quality lenses to the eye without being digitized in between, just like being there yourself. The giant was making its way across a wide open grassland, moving steadily. It was on its way from somewhere to somewhere else, perhaps migrating. This was one of the things the bio folks were studying. Zeke moved in from the side and opened up with a short burst from the Browning. The crisp little display in our binoculars counted an even 20 rounds. That would have dropped an elephant cold if there were any elephants left to aim it at. The giant turned toward the source of its irritation. Some of the bullets had very clearly bounced off its mammoth beak. It tilted its head in Zeke's direction. It was not quite smart enough to realize that something as small as Zeke and his flyer might be dangerous. Zeke hit it again, and the counter stopped at 80. This time it saw the muzzle flash and understood that Zeke was the source of its irritation, and it moved toward him. It moved toward him very quickly. It was big, but it had long legs and a surprisingly quick gait. Get out of there, asshole, Emma said under her breath. Zeke opened up again, and this time the display ran to 160. The giant had closed half the distance, and Zeke had made no move to evade it. The gun fired again, and the display ran to 300. The flyer, not being very large, this was all the ammo he had. The giant only ran faster and ripped loose a searing bellow of anger, like the DJ mix of a parrot imitating a foghorn dropped two octaves. Zeke finally punched the controls and shot up vertically. The monster bellowed up at him as he hovered about 30 meters beyond its reach. Then it jumped. Later, the biologist marveled at the recordings. Normally, such a massive animal can't safely fall for more than a few meters, much less jump that high. But its legs appeared to be equipped with massive system of energy storage and shock-absorbing accessories, much more special purpose than simple muscles. It managed to knock Zeke aside with one claw, but not get a grip on the sled, and fortunately didn't quite get in beak range. It did snap its beak at him, and Zeke said it sounded like two mountains slamming together. The biologist followed in one of the observation platforms and saw that the ambush had had apparently done no real damage. Three days later, the animal was still making its way south. The biologists also found other targets of interest, but Zeke was intent on taking this one down. Five days later, he was ready with plan B. What the actual fuck is that, I asked when I laid eyes on the new armament. This gun was mounted fast to the sled, so the sled would have to be maneuvered to aim it. The gun itself was over two meters long. Zeke no longer had a chair. He would be face down next to the gun strapped to the sled, which had been lengthened to about the size of a surfboard. That is a fucking Lottie L-39 anti-tank rifle, Emma said. Only semi-automatic and not made since World War II. Somebody appears to have taken my advice. Yes, I have, Zeke said from behind us. The 50 cal rounds just bounced off. This is a much heavier shell with about the same muzzle velocity. Not fully auto, though. I couldn't take enough ammo to fire for more than a few seconds if it was. I did have access to the full-auto aircraft variant. No, this is for precision. The whole sled will recoil hard when it's fired, and only the first shot full-auto has any accuracy. I have to find its weak points and drill them, so that's why I got the not-very-big-two laser sight mounted on the antique elephant gun. Why don't you use something more modern, I asked. Because nothing like this has been made since we started using explosives for piercing armor. You could just use an RPG, Emma said sweetly. I'm hoping it doesn't come to that. messes up the barbecue. Surely a PDE5 inhibitor would work better than all this, I said after he left. Maybe they give him heartburn. Round two started up about like round one, except 60 kilometers further south. Zeke still didn't sneak up from behind, although Emma confided that she would consider it the only sensible strategy after what had happened the first time. Zeke settled in just above the grass and pulled the trigger. Our round counters flipped to one. The animal made a gesture that was easily recognizable for, not this shit again. It spotted Zeke and started toward him. He fired at intervals of a few seconds, and on his fourth shot, one of the giant's eyes exploded in a gout of red. But it kept coming. These things don't seem to have gotten the flight part of the fight or flight memo, Emma observed. Zeke would just pursue it if it turned and ran. Maybe it's smarter than it looks. Red spots appeared on the animal's neck, on its chest, at its crotch. There was audible groaning from the audience when that happened. Still it came, and Zeke backed away, still firing, since the sled and gun were essentially one machine the way it was mounted nothing slowed it down and after exhausting his ammunition zeke shot upward fast enough that he couldn't jump for him again on the comm channel we could hear him unleashing the blue streak of profanity at it that was however the end of the duel the biologist called eight hours later to let us know the animal had finally died of its wounds it had taken that long despite some obvious severed arteries that left it resting in a pool of at least 100 liters of blood They got in quickly with robots to get the blood and tissue samples they needed. Scavengers were gathering, and many of those were also potentially too powerful to easily deal with. Fortunately, night was falling, and the scavengers did seem to fear fire. This made it possible for the biologists to move in when they were sure the monster was really dead and harvest Zeke's barbecue slab. The tests were clean for human consumption, and there was enough meat for everyone in the crew to have a generous sample. (coughs) At Zeke's personal direction, they sliced the massive muscle into centimeter-thick slices and then three centimeter-wide strips. Zeke turned out to be quite the barbecue artist. But after all that drama, it was rather anticlimactic to find out the giant carnivore's meat tasted almost exactly like dark turkey meat. Okay. (coughs) Excuse me. So, book two, part 20. We had been with the Silverford Curator for close to a month, surveying the tribes of a bipedal species, which are about the same level of development as our own Australopithecine ancestors. She told us that they had mastered the use of rock hammers and bone clubs without curator help. They were using fire in increasingly necessary ways for their evolving lifestyle, but they had not earned, not learned to make fire from scratch yet, and that might be grounds for an intervention. They numbered about thirty thousand in eighty or so tribes living in a region of about fifty thousand square kilometers of mixed forest and grassland. They had followed the common pattern of moving from an arboreal life, which had given them good vision and spatial awareness, to walking on the ground. In their new ground-bound existence. They increasingly needed fire to ward off threats at night and to cook their food, which was increasingly protein-based. They had learned to tend fires carefully, but all the tribes were subject to the occasional loss of their seed fire. (coughs) And then they had to wait for fortunate lightning strike or an encounter with another tribe to make a new one. Such fireless periods were increasingly dangerous for them. And it had happened on a few occasions that all the tribes lost their fire at the same time due to a widespread weather catastrophe, and those incidents now threatened them with extinction. We watched them at night, since that was when their fire-tending habits were most on display. Our camp was on the far side of the world, so we could rest when we weren't observing them. The curator had simply given us the coordinates and told us to show up with portable shelter. On an interstellar jump, that limited us to a few kilograms of gear. We asked if there would be trees, and she said, of course, there would be trees. So we brought a covered hammock. She watched curiously as we set it up. Her own shelter was a tent of impossibly thin and strong fabric, which inflated itself and stiffened to hardness and maintained its shape despite having openings. It was well beyond human technology. Considering your technology, your approach to the problem is elegant, she said of the hammock. Fortunately, our implants made it unnecessary to pack in food, water, or fire for our expedition. But almost all the curator's children had circadian rhythms, which enforced a daily period of rest, most easily observed in darkness. The curator was evaluating which tribe would be the optimal recipient of a Prometheus stone. Parameters included how likely they would be to need it and how often, incentivizing them to learn its lessons and how likely they would be to meet other tribes and pass their new skill along once the stone had done its work. We understood that this was a complex problem. The curators had evaluated millions of times and listened listened attentively as she explained each step of the reasoning, both in our investigation and her final decision. (coughs) We observed from the distance, cloaked by our invisibility shields in the night, Our implants made it possible to listen as if we were present in each tribe's camp, and we had a good understanding of their primitive language, and it's already spreading variations. Each tribe had a favored territory, which overlapped those of other tribes, and migration routes, which both intersected each other and varied over time in ways the curator had been studying for some time. Finally, she announced her decision. This is one of the larger tribes and is likely to split within a generation or two. It has a large territory with high fan out for encounters with the other tribes. And a storm system is moving in, which is quite likely to douse their fire in a few days. She reached into the fabric pouch she used to carry field equipment and produced what looked like a piece of petrified wood. She handed it to Emma. It had a small depression in one side, and when Emma passed her hand over it, a small flame appeared. This doesn't look like the one we saw at the civilian museum, Emma said. We have different versions. This one relies less on symbol reading since these creatures aren't making symbolic markings yet. At first, it will simply give them fire. But over time, it will require more and more of the practical skill of making and operating a fire drill in order to work. Eventually, their skill will be perfect, and it will stop working, forcing them to try their technique on real wood. What if they don't notice it? Once it's placed in initiation mode, it will glow continuously until it is picked up and activated. They don't seem likely to move from where they are before the storm system arrives, so they will probably need it while they are still here where they can attract their attention. In some situations, we might help them by extinguishing their regular fire ourselves, but I don't think that will be necessary here. The curator let Emma carry the stone to them. The invisibility cloak wasn't perfect, but early in the morning when the fire was burning low and most of the creatures were fast asleep, she easily snuck in and tucked it into the embers of their fading fire. When Emma got back, the curator and I were examining telemetry readings from the stone. You placed it well, the curator said. There's an excellent chance they will activate it simply by renewing the fire as it is. That will let them know what it can do when they truly need it. A million years from now, this may turn out to be the most important event in this race's history, or it may come to nothing. We can never be sure. It's a bit overwhelming to think of what I just did that way. You are curators now. What you just did is the very essence of curation. We continued to watch the tribe for a few more evenings, and as expected, the rains came and doused the fire. They had noticed the stone and put it aside, as wary of it as they were curious. But when the fire died, there was a great flutter of argument among them before one of them deliberately made it produce a flame. After that, they went about gathering the driest kindling they could find, and soon they had their main fire restarted. Soon we observed the individual who had made that flame on the night of the storm was keeping the stone with him, apparently at the urging of the tribe's alpha leader. This is an interesting development, the curator told us. The leader is probably a little afraid of it, but they all all recognize its usefulness and power. Delegating a power like this to another is an important step on the road to making a complex society that can perform deep planning and execute non-trivial projects, and it's not usually directly related to the acquisition of fire. Most primitive human societies that we've studied had a broad division between what you might call alpha leadership and the vocation of consulting the gods, I said. Could this person become their first witch doctor? Humans followed that path because not being curated, your ancestors had no idea where such powers came from. Eventually, these creatures will know that they benefited from our intervention, but it's too early now. They don't have the faculties to properly assess their role in the universe yet. Back in Terlingua, six weeks after leaving, we caught Quentin up on our adventure. Their role in the universe? What do you suppose the curators think those creatures' role in the universe is supposed to be? It was a good question and one we couldn't easily answer, except to observe that the way she had said it, it seemed clear that their role in the universe would never compare to that of the curators. And for all of the benefit we were bringing to them, the curators' methods might just be designed, at least in part, to make sure it stayed that way. Book 2, Part 21. Back on Terra Nova, Zeke was putting the finishing touches on his new killing machine. He had given up on conventional human tech and fitted his flying set with something that looked like a giant electric bazooka. What the hell is that? Emma said as we sized it up. Gravity plating railgun, Zeke said as he completed an adjustment. Sure enough, we realized the launch tube was made up of hundreds of circular plates of nanite gravity plating in a four-meter-long stack. Gave up on explosive propellants, Emma said brightly. Not good enough, Zeke said. These fuckers are tough. I've got first kill, but I'm going to get first one shot on them. We can't blow a hundred rounds of antique ammo on every one of half a million individual critters. That thing must weigh a ton, I said. Just about. Kind of love gravity plating, though. Doesn't matter how much something weighs. If you can get it in the field, it just floats. So what does this thing fire? Zeke tossed her a metal bar. It was about three centimeters in diameter, half a meter long, and Emma seemed surprised at its heft as she caught it. Tungsten, Zeke said, and we'll recover and recycle them. About seven kilograms, right? Should be enough to punch through that tough skin. What's your target velocity? About two kilometers per second should look satisfyingly like a normal gunshot to the spectators and no recoil. Just a second, Emma said. How the hell did you get that kind of acceleration from gravity plating? She didn't say it out loud, but that's on the order of what she could summon by directing the gravity of a black hole. And that's a little more intense than what holds us down to the floor. That you would have to talk to the technical guys. I'm just aiming it at the monsters. At Zeke's direction, we found the weapons lab and found the railgun team. Oh, it was quite an adventure, one of the engineers bragged. I was on the team that was trying to reverse engineer this stuff before the curators paid us for the civilian fold inhibitor by giving us the technique. Nanite plating contains protective circuitry to keep it from being overloaded past about two and a half Earth gravities. But we found that with the curator's description, we could locate functional elements within its nanite lattice and we could selectively disable the overload sensors by burning them out with ultraviolet laser. Takes about half an hour to treat one of these plates. (coughs) He handed us a single rail gun plate, half a centimeter thick and 30 centimeters in diameter with a three centimeter central borehole. This made it possible to push the plates to 100 gravities, at least for a few milliseconds before they would start to melt. Then by selectively leaving some of the overloads in place, we could refractively focus the beam so the whole plate's effect is concentrated mostly along the central bore. That got us up to 1,000 gravities, and stacking 500 plates to make it four meters long gave us a combined half million gravities over the length of the bore. It takes about five milliseconds to get the projectile up to speed, and in classic fashion, the Old-fashioned, the bullet has a lot more energy than we put into the gravity plates. Conservation of energy, take that. How does it compare to the Lottie? Oh, the elephant gun manages about 800 meters per second for a 300-gram projectile. So MV squared makes the railgun about 100 times more powerful. But it took 300 Lottie rounds to take one of these things down, and it still lived for a few more hours after the attack. True, but this one will hit it all at once and put all the energy into one chosen spot. If Zeke hits the heart or brain, it's lights out. The biologists were less impressed. You'll probably get a one-shot kill with it, the research head said, but not every time. You would pretty much need a direct hit on the heart or brain for a quick kill, and everything is well protected. The big guys, both carnivores and herbivores, have thick skulls in their hearts are protected deep within the mass of their body, and their other vulnerable points are much smaller targets. Hitting one of them in one shot would be a trick shot of the first order. Any luck on your end, I asked? Not much. The evolutionary arms race has reduced the diversity, so there aren't a lot of macroscopic animal species left, and the ones that have survived are pretty closely related. Pretty much all of the macrofauna we found are more closely related to each other than just the mammals of Earth are. If you get down to individuals weighing less than a kilogram, there are some less related stragglers, but those would be likely to survive the curator's asteroid anyway. That's what our ancestors were in the Cretaceous. Wouldn't a natural pandemic be likely to wipe everything out? You'd think so, but we really haven't found many sick animals, and we think all of those have been very old. It may be that these forms are the survivors of a wave of pandemics that just left them all with similar immune complexes. There's nothing biochemically different about the big and small forms, not that we found at the scale of interest. Everything on land larger than a wolf or gazelle is pretty much the same class and forming only a handful of orders. If there were other megafauna classes, the beacosaurs and their relatives might have wiped them out a long time ago. We have yet to propose even a simulated disease organism that might affect the big guys that wouldn't affect the smaller ones even harder. And they have similar vulnerabilities to chemical toxins as well. One of the hunters suggested they could go for poisoning with small pellets of something highly toxic like polonium-210 instead of going for outright kills. After a few thousand years, there'd be nothing left in the environment but harmless trace amounts of decay products. But the problem with that is the scavengers would ingest and spread the toxin. Any successful program is going to have a lot of carrion lying around to be scavenged. And if we make a real dent in the large animal's population, we would expect at least a temporary surge in the numbers of the smaller ones as a result. So you're telling us that we offered to show off our celebrated killing skill on a world of unkillable super predators. Oh, it's not just the predators. Don't even get me started on the herbivores. They have effective defenses against the predators and the kind of bad temper we might if we were constantly being hunted all day by actual T-Rexes back home. And they form herds. The ironic thing is this is exactly the reason the curators want to throw an asteroid at this place. In a lot of ways, it's even further along a dead-end evolutionary pathway than Earth was 65 million years ago. Even if we wipe out all the biggest guys, considering who will be left, it's very likely they'll just re-evolve as surviving smaller species, reoccupy the niches that we open. So you think we're wasting our time? Not so far. The boys will have their fun, and it's kind of fun watching them bash their heads against this particular wall. And we're learning a lot. Politeness forbids us from doing this kind of survey on most of the worlds we visit. But as for fulfilling our stated mission, I think you're going to end up slinking back to the curators and admitting that this time they had the right idea. Of course, we turned out to see Zeke go for what would be the first one-shot kill of the entire campaign. In keeping with his goal, he hadn't fitted his gravity rail gun with a means to reload it. It had to be fired a few times to sight it, but it needed to be loaded from the rear. The bullet was held in place of the light-duty clips until the gravity plating stack went to work. The new flying sled was longer and wider than the one that had flown the Lottie, and and like that one, Zeke flew it on his belly, lying alongside his gravity gun. Doesn't the gravity pulse affect you at such close proximity, Emma asked when she saw the arrangement? A little, but the plating is focused to affect things uh, beyond its bore as little as possible. I can feel a little jerk when it fires, but nothing dangerous. While we talked, Zeke loaded the gun, carefully pushing the bullet into place through the hole in the rear of the cannon. There was a faint click as the clips locked in place. So who cut all the gravity plating donuts? The scientists cut the first few prototypes, but then when they told me what might be possible, I arranged to order them custom-grown. It was a lot of fun trying to explain to the alien procurement agent why we wanted a thousand gravity plating circles this size with holes in the middle. What did you tell them? Special form space hydroponic lab. Humans are always doing weird shit nobody else would think of, so nobody's the wiser. Some of the curators are going to have a cow when they learn about this, Emma said after we left. They already have a whole dairy farm, don't they? We took up position in the observation flyer and watched through our binoculars as Zeke closed in on his prey. He was intent on getting as close as possible for both maximum impact energy and best aim. He was going to try for a heart shot, and the animal's heart was deeply located beyond half a meter of other flesh, including a very thick and tough layer of skin and scales. Fortunately, the flyer was silent, and Zeke was sensibly approaching from the animal's blind spot at the rear this time. He took his time placing the laser sight dot where the anatomist had told him his chances would be best, and he fired. Zeke and his cannon zoomed straight up, not waiting for the animal's reaction as it started to wheel around. The tungsten bullet had entered the animal's body exactly where Zeke intended, and a great jet of blood was now erupting from that wound. But the bullet hadn't exited, and it was unclear just how much damage it might have done. As Zeke hovered, the animal jumped, but Zeke had flown too high for it to reach, and in mid-leap it appeared to lurch. Instead of landing on its elegant spring-loaded hindquarters, it collapsed in a heap, with several loud snaps suggesting broken bones. It continued to thrash and scream for a few more minutes as blood jetted from the wound, and then both the blood jet and the screaming came to a sudden simultaneous end. Zeke waited a few more minutes and then posed while a drone took his picture in front of the animal's massive beak. Later, there would be more barbecue and someone would have to figure out how to retrieve the tungsten bullet. In one of the Nostromo's conference rooms, they had set up a leaderboard with summary for each of the largest species, for the largest predator, Zeke had now had both first and first one-shot kill. We saw that the remaining categories were barehand, passive, and pack-in. We found Zeke and asked him what that was up, uh, what was up with those. None of them likely to be claimed for these biggest guys, Zeke laughed. Barehand is just what it sounds like, no weapons. Passive means only weapons powered by human muscles like knives, spears, bows, and laddles and such pack in means whatever technology you can carry without mechanical assistance for at least a kilometer to reach the kill site someone could maybe technically try it for that one with the lottie but only if you can figure out how not to get killed by a giant wounded murder saurus before it realizes it's dead any ideas on getting the bullet back i asked wait until the scavengers do their thing and collect it from the bone pile while we were celebrating, the Silverford curator invited us to join her for possible placement of a tablet of writing. So we retired early and simply disappeared from Terranova to continue that branch of our studies. Book two, part 22. The silver-furred curator brought us to a world that strongly resembled earth in its mix of megafauna its widely separated continents and its prominent ice caps she was wearing an amplifier belt and when we asked if that was necessary to introduce writing she said no there was another ongoing project for which she happened to need it Our species of interest was confined to one subcontinent and by the oceans and climatic barriers their ancestors, going back a few million years, had been small pack carnivores like wolves, but they had adopted a bipedal gait and fingers as well as changing climate, altering their circumstances. The curators had encouraged them to become omnivorous, introducing genetic modifications to lengthen their digestive tract and giving them fire for cooking to make tough plant fibers more digestible. A million years of hunting and gathering had drawn them toward a fairly common body profile, so that they could run, see at a distance, and pick and carry forage. They had spears and at laddles, but not the bow, and they did have flint napping for making points, but they had not elevated to the to the art humans once had before other technologies came along. More recently, the curators had introduced agriculture by teaching them to spread and cover seeds in places where they might want mature plants in the future. This had allowed them to reduce their range of nomadic migration, but they still lived in small, mobile clans and did not have anything like formal trade. How long have they known about seeds and planting, I asked as we watched one of the tribes from afar. About 2,500 years It seems odd that they haven't progressed more. On Earth, cities quickly emerged after agriculture was developed. Well, yes, as in both ways, Earth is an outlier. This is a more normal pace of development, but one which we do think it's time to move along. She showed Emma the tablet of writing, which one of us would leave with them once, as with the recipients of the Firestone, we had identified the best candidate to receive it. The tablet was in introduction mode and displayed a single glyph, which we recognized from the written form of galactic common. When Emma touched the tablet, it glowed and spoke the sound represented by the glyph. Emma spoke a few words of common, and they appeared on the tablet. We're teaching them common, she asked skeptically. No, just using the glyphs. No reason to reinvent the wheel. The tablet actually knows their language and will actively guide them once they reach a suitable level of development. What will they write with? At first, they can write on the tablet with a finger or stick. Eventually, it will require them to use a coating like pigment or soot, and the tablet won't be permanently stained like the other surfaces they will be sure to try. As with the Firestone, the idea is to form habits, which become useful tools to implement the behavior we want to encourage. That's rather like the way we train animals, I said, and Emma looked at me sharply. But the curator was nonplussed. That's appropriate because we are animals, she said. That is not something we want to abandon. Even our curator implants are carefully engineered not to turn us into machines. But these methods are all more manipulative than informative. We aren't really teaching them why writing is important and useful. We're conditioning them to do it without thinking. But that's the steadiest way of introducing a new skill. At this point in their development, it's more useful to introduce useful skills than a philosophical appreciation of why they need those skills. This species is in, a much, is in a much stronger position than the last one we met. It has a much larger population, and they face fewer threats, both individually and existentially. Each of our gifts is meant to strengthen them further without entirely replacing their original uniqueness with our own vision. Since we were observing these guys in the daytime, our camp was on the same side of the world, but on the far side of a field of glaciers, which they had not yet figured out how to cross. The curator diagrammed our decision-making process in glowing glyphs in the air between us. Tribe 18 has the best distribution of cultivated patches, she said, making them more likely to use writing for record-keeping and extending their agricultural skill. But Tribe 30 has the widest association with other tribes, making them more likely to use writing for trade and negotiation. I'm interested to hear your reasoning on which to favor. I take it part of the lesson will be basic math. Yes, they can already count to about 20, and part of the lesson will be to extend that. I'd go with the potential traders, then, Emma said. Trade will put pressure on resource availability, kind of forcing them in that direction, too. I agree. That's what drove it on Earth, I added. The curator made a gesture we recognized as her race's expression of a sigh. Of course, but that's exactly why we don't want to give them the tablet. We want them to absorb change at at a manageable pace. By the time anyone realizes the farmers are doing something different, they will have mastered the art and given it a fixed place in their routine. Further uses will follow, but at a measured rate as new tribes are exposed to the art and pick it up with a focus on that purpose. Do you see? Yes, if that's the goal, then your decision makes sense, and it is your project. You would, of course, take the risk of explosive growth because that's your only experience. These people are gradually being lifted from the privation and use of and risk of predation and would never have made war. Humans had to develop quickly because other humans were developing quickly, too, and it became a race. But it was all amongst yourselves and unnecessary. The universe is not so hostile that we need to get up to speed to make war with it. But haven't a lot of races, including our own ancestors, been wiped out by their own stars, making their systems uninhabitable? Wouldn't it make sense to resist such a conclusion? so human as one of your poets once said rage rage against the dying of the light but the light always dies this is the natural progression of things the background color of space is the blackness of nothing the curators have gone to some considerable effort not to die all that soon i said carefully this is true but as our friends the witnesses are fond of pointing out even we aren't immortal We just drag it out so that we can properly manage the task of curation. But long life also separates us from the dynamic reality of life in our garden. Once we are curators, we can never again simply live among our children without being constantly aware that we are different. We can never truly be friends with creatures that do not share our longevity. And if our longevity were universal, our garden would be ruined. All patterns of change would be frozen or disrupted. We watched for another week. And then I made the gift of the tablet to the tribe, which had the most extensive cultivated plots. Although calling them cultivated was a bit generous, they had learned to scatter seeds and to make sure there was water and shade and sunlight for certain crops. But they did not treat the ground in any way or attempt to bury their seeds. They had not learned to plant and harvest tubers because they didn't realize the roots could be edible. The curator said this was a normal pace of development. As we prepared to break camp, she said, there is something I need to tell you. I don't know who made the decision to give me this assignment, but I don't think it was a good idea. What? I know you've been told that the decision was made not to curate your species because we felt that your tendency to make war would limit both your population and your developmental potential. Most of the curators you have met were either neutral toward that decision or, as with other human form, colleagues, actively disagreed with it, which is fair. Even curators can have disagreements. I can see now that I was objectively wrong about the human race in several ways, although I don't necessarily think the situation is better than I originally imagined. What is not fair is this. You should know that I was one of the individuals who made that decision. Six of us were entrusted with the fate of your species, and we voted four to two to leave you to your own devices. Thanks for telling us, Emma said. I suppose I can understand. I guess we're all glad that you were wrong. She made a staccato snort that we recognized as a laugh. Oh, I wasn't wrong, she said. I just wasn't right enough. If I could go back and advise myself based on what I know now, I'd lobby to have your ancestors genocidally exterminated. In your short time among us, you have ruined your planet. You have taken over other planets. You have shown others how to take over other planets, and you have introduced new modalities at rate unseen since the time of the ancestors themselves. New fold drives, new fold technologies, you've gone to great effort not to just use those technologies yourselves, but also to spread them across the whole galaxy. New weapons, it wasn't enough that you made a radiation projector out of our communication technology, now you've made a projectile cannon out of gravity plating. Is there anything your people won't turn into a weapon? Emma was giggling, which perplexed the curator. You find this funny? Oh, I suppose it isn't. I guess you're right about everything. But I was just thinking that back when we had countries and spies and soldiers and all that, which we don't anymore, of course, that, yes, one of the skills that our black op guys were taught was how to kill somebody with a pencil. So, yes, I guess we are guilty of turning everything we touch into weapons. And she burst out laughing. The curator looked at me. And this is funny to you people. Our psychologists think that humor is sometimes an interrupted defense mechanism. It softens the blow of realizing the unpleasant truth of the situation. Well, in that case, there is something I do need to show you. Fold with me. She gave us coordinates in a spirit of conviviality. We let her guide us. We found ourselves in a human-made inflatable habitat module. What is this? This is where I sincerely apologize. I hated the lying and I hated pretending that you are not the most dangerous vermin to infect our garden and all of living memory, which for us is a long, long time. And as dangerous as your species is, the even more crazy and dangerous thing which was done was giving you two our powers. Half the terrible things humans have done to our garden have been done by you two specifically. So if there was any other way to do this, just know I would have taken it. But there isn't. Not at this point. Goodbye, Jay and Emma of Earth, and she folded out. That was fold inhibitor, Emma said. I triggered some automated checks and realized she was right. We were stuck in the field of a fold inhibitor. But how? I think we would have sensed it if the field had been shuttered. She was wearing an amplifier belt. We didn't fold ourselves here. She folded us here. The amplifier must be able to punch through from outside the inhibition field. Our implants can only get 100 meters or so, and there's nothing around outside but vacuum. It began to dawn on us that the hab was completely empty. There was no equipment of any kind, no pressure suits, no communication gear, not even any atmospheric processing equipment. There was, however, a piece of paper on the floor, which was hand-printed in Galactic Common. I read it. I wanted to leave you with privacy to say your goodbyes, but I am not a cruel being by nature. Accordingly, the end will be merciful. Hopefully, we can deal with the rest of your species in a less final fashion. That is rather ominous, Emma said. After a minute or so, there was a loud beep and a small explosion punched in the wall of the Hab. It wasn't strong enough to harm us, but it had been placed at the base of a seam, which ripped open, spilling the Hab's atmosphere out into the night of some world's stabilizing moon. With our last breaths, Emma and I embraced, and because it was impossible to talk in the howling and thinning maelstrom, Emma spoke through her implant in my head. It has been an honor and a privilege to fly with you. A few moments later, we collapsed unconscious to the floor as the deflated roof of the hab floated down to cover us. To be continued. Jesus. (laughs) Oops. Dude, you just killed him. Well, maybe. Book two, part 23.
1: Roger, monologue. I got to pee real quick. What the fuck? Why'd
0: you kill him? <laughs> what? He doesn't know. It's called drama. Yes, that uh, spurred a bit of a discussion in the comments, too. Uh, A few people were starting to go to sleep after all of the curator lessons and not being too excited about Terra Nova, but that woke them up. gonna have some fun how do we salvage this a lot of people wondered in the comments
1: i'm taking for all the pollen i'm taking this allergy medicine that makes my throat really dry so i've been drinking way more water than the large amount that i already drink hence the bathroom and bricks okay sorry keep going All right.
0: book two part 23 <sighs> <You> motherfucker <laughs> i could not figure out where i was i was conscious but in, and in fact i felt very alert but i had no senses and couldn't feel my body i was also aware that i should have been a bit more upset by this than i was but i also didn't seem to be feeling strong emotions like fear or panic the last thing I could remember was preparing to deliver the tablet of writing for the curator's direction. I was aware of my curator implant, but much of what it would usually be telling me was blank or off scale. I wondered to myself what the hell was going on, and like a memory, a thought floated into my mind. n synchronization could not be completed. That felt like my thought, but it obviously was not. And that's the way the implant usually delivers requested information. The curators didn't want the implant to feel like another separate being lurking within one's mind, even though that's very obviously what it is in many important ways. But interactions with it are made to feel like one's own thoughts and feelings. I had the impression that this thought about engrams would convey important information if I had any idea what it meant. Since it was something I could sense, I took inventory of the fold situation and finally recognized one of my circumstances. I was in the field of a fold inhibitor, and it had shut down most of my implant's functionality. I could still fold a short distance, but all sorts of alarms twitched when I thought about trying it. And that didn't explain why I seemed to be disembodied. I wondered what was up with that and got another answer. The bioform is incapacitated. It wasn't like having a conversation. If I thought of questions, they went unanswered. But if I wondered about something, sometimes it felt like I just knew. I wondered why the bioform was incapacitated. The local environment is in vacuum. The bioform has vacuum defenses, but they are unfamiliar and the prognosis is unknown. There is no safe destination to fold to within the range imposed by the inhibitor. And what about Emma? The companion bioform is also incapacitated by the vacuum environment. Her implant is in ready mode, and it requires her conscious interaction to take action. But if she was unconscious, what was happening with me? This implant recorded sufficient engrams to perform emulation under the threshold established for emergency action in a bioform mortality situation. So that was it. I wasn't actually Jay. I was the implant emulating Jay. That was odd because I certainly felt like Jay and remembered a lot of Jay's life, but there were also conspicuous gaps. In particular, I couldn't remember much at all of my medical training. I vaguely remembered our mentor telling us of this capability when we received our implants, but wasn't it supposed to take a thousand years or more to become enabled? Engram synchronization is highly variable and sometimes reaches threshold much sooner, particularly under emergency situations. So that was it. My mouse wheel just jumped. The situation was an emergency. Loss of the bioform is to be avoided if possible. I found that I wasn't completely blind. I could sense my environment within 100 meters or so and understood that I was indeed on the surface of a low-gravity airless world, almost certainly the stabilizing moon of a curated world. I could also sense the strength of the inhibitor field by its effect on my capabilities. I had to find the dam inhibitor. Separation from the bioform is to be avoided, but emergency protocols, protocols allow it via override. Would I be able to reconnect? If the bioform is returned to safety, reconnection will be automatic. I overrode the interlock and separated from my human body and found that the fold inhibitor didn't impede my ability to navigate in normal space. I could go almost the speed of light because without my body, my point of contact with the material universe was a massless point. Of course, this also meant I had no way to interact with the world since all my implants modalities were fold based. I set up a hill climbing area search algorithm and spent about half an hour locating the inhibitor. It was about a quarter of the small world's circumference away from where I had awakened. I knew that I could find my way back with great precision. Though I didn't know where I was, I did know how I had gotten from where I started to where I was now. I had no way to affect the inhibitor, though. I couldn't disrupt its power or damage it, and if it had a user interface, I had no way to operate it. I had to get out of the inhibitor field and figure out where I was, so I shot up from the inhibitor site at about 80% of the speed of light. It took 15 minutes to reach the edge of the inhibitor field, which was little more than an astronomical unit in radius. And then, just as suddenly, I knew where I was. My fold senses couldn't feel Seville or its moon or the sun or the inner planets of its system, all of which were within the inhibitor field. But I knew where I was in the universe, and I could feel the outer planets, which matched my very implant-precise expectations. I could now fold to any point in the galaxy, but none of my options were all that promising. Fortunately, I seemed to be thinking very fast. In normal circumstances, emulation is paced to the natural rate of thought, but in emergency protocol, it can run 50 to 80 times faster. I could go for help, but I could probably, and I could probably even communicate by taking over a microfold channel. But even if I could interact, you know, attract help, and bring them to Seville, they would be just as stuck as I was. Traveling an astronomical unit through normal space without full technology to decelerate would take weeks. And while Emma's experience, when the plausible deniability had blown out, showed that we had at least a few hours, we knew from the witnesses that we had at most a day or so before permanent damage would set in, and no more than two days at the outside for our bodies to survive. I still didn't have any idea how we had gotten to the middle of an inhibitor field, and my implant had no idea when I wondered about it but it didn't matter. Much of what was me was still locked up in brain jelly and both the implant logic and my emulated consciousness were strongly motivated to get it back. Not to mention that I really wanted to also save my wife. After excluding a long list of things that were obviously unworkable, I decided to start by asking myself what was at hand. I could easily and precisely navigate the outer Seville system and without my bioform as part of the package, I could fold a payload of several hundred kilograms within that range. I could project energy from the heart of some star other than Seville's, but I couldn't collimate it well enough to be a useful weapon at a range of 150 million kilometers. And I could use supergravity to accelerate things. That created an option. I folded out to the closest gas giant, confident that it would have a ring. It did, and I spent half an hour or so shopping for a suitable chunk of ice. It wouldn't be too, It couldn't be too big for me to fold in system, but it had to be as big as possible within that limit to be effective. When I found what I wanted, I folded back to the point where I had emerged from the fold inhibitor field. I was confident that I was within centimeters of where I would have been if I had simply kept my original velocity vector from the world where my body was trapped. Seville's moon would be curving around Seville in its orbit, and Seville itself similarly curving around its host star, But in the course of a few hours, those departures from a straight line would amount to at most a few meters. It was maddening considering I could locate points on world circling other stars to within millimeters, but the situation was the situation. I aimed as accurately as I could and opened a microfold supergravity portal to the Sagittarius X1 black hole. The strength of the gravity field and high velocity affected my accuracy even more, but I only needed to be within a few kilometers back at the moon. When I stopped pushing on the ice junk, it was moving at about a third of the speed of light. I raced ahead of it back to my body and waited. The implant wanted to reconnect, but its protocol would not require that until I got my body to a place of safety. When my ice block struck, I knew instantly that it had hit about 800 meters from the inhibitor, which had then been vaporized in the impact fireball. Now a plume of white-hot molten ejecta was rising to blanket the moon. This introduced a new problem. I could fold my body to another star system, but once I did that, my implant would reconnect, and I'd be unconscious for a few hours while my vacuum defenses abated. Meanwhile, Emma would be buried under flaming debris. There was only one place where I could fold both of us that was habitable, and that was the world of Seville itself. Fortunately, I had an idea where I might be able to take us, where the natives wouldn't be likely to stumble across our unconscious bodies as we recovered. I didn't know how a civilian would be likely to react to the sudden appearance of one of those humans who had exiled them. I folded us over several minutes before the whole area was pelted with molten rock. To be continued... So you see I didn't kill them. It's it happened I, It's a serial. You have to occasionally scare the shit out of your readers. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Book 2 part 24. After losing consciousness in the ruptured Lahab, I woke up on the floor of a large brightly lit nanite-based building. It wasn't decorated and had the feel of a public work, which wouldn't often have random visitors. There was a large display showing a grid of mostly green indicators with a few red ones sprinkled about. As I watched, one of the red indicators turned green. Opposite this display, the roof vaulted toward a wall which undulated like an array of cylinders. Each of these undulations carried some lettering in Galactic Common. The nearest one said Falling Tower 1242920. That sign hadn't been placed by human or alien operators. It had been embedded in the surface of the wall by the nanites that built it. This was a power plant, the classic nanites based style, which worked by folding large magnetic weights to the top of towers to fall past pickup coils. As I worked this out, I heard footsteps and turned to find Emma approaching from the connecting hallway. Welcome back, she said. I woke up about half an hour ago. The natives are here, and they're a bit restless. As she said this, one of the natives followed her into the control room. It was a civilian, and its dermis was bright green, indicating confusion. Do you know why the moon is on fire? It asked me, as if it could not believe it was asking such a ridiculous thing. I didn't know the moon was on fire, I said. I don't know why I'm here at all. The power plant was abandoned when we were exiled, and it stopped working. Today it came to life, and we came here to investigate. We found you here in the control room. We thought you might be dead, but now you've awakened. While you were still unconscious, the moon rose, and it's on fire. We took an elevator to the roof. The sky was dark, and the quarter moon was fully covered with glowing debris. It was thickest and brightest toward the northeastern quadrant, suggesting that the source of the disturbance was over the lunar horizon in that direction. What in hell could do this, Emma asked. 300 kilograms of ice impacting at 100,000 kilometers per second, I said without thinking. Then I realized what I had said. I think that was my implant, I added. And what else does your implant know about this? Engram synchronization will not be immediate. I reported this thought and said, whatever that means. But after that, there were no other messages on the subject, conscious or otherwise. We have to leave, I said. This is Seville. Right now, everyone is all boggled because the exile is broken and their toys are working again. But eventually, someone is going to realize just exactly which alien species we are. And we probably don't want to be here when they do. Well, we can fold now. Back to Earth, I could stand a cocktail at the top of the mark right about now. We have to be careful. That bitch tried to kill us and damn near succeeded. I still don't understand how she didn't succeed, but I don't want to give her a chance for a do-over. We don't know who we can trust, and every indexed world has at least one curator among its population, and they can detect our fold activity. In fact, my understanding is that there were some curators who stayed here to observe the period of exile. They might already know we're here. Well, if we have to go somewhere and everywhere has an embedded curator, what do we do? Not everywhere has an embedded curator. I'd be pretty confident there isn't one at the st- among the staff at Terra Nova. So we folded back to the Nostromo, where we found the whole scene almost distressingly normal. They were used to our comings and goings, and our return after another curator lesson was completely expected. For the time being, we didn't tell them otherwise, but we did try to keep a low profile and ask the people who knew we had arrived not to spread the news too widely, particularly back to Earth. We had dinner and drinks with Zeke and listened politely as he discussed his progress and plans to make more gravity guns. He had added his name to the leaderboard for a few other species, as had a few of the other hunters. They had learned that when hunting the herbivores, they needed a reloading mechanism because they were even harder to kill than the carnivores. Our old friend, the human form curator, met us at the door to our cabin. My knees went weak as I realized our secret was already out, but Emma just gestured for him to quickly come inside with us. How did you find out we were back? She asked urgently. I've been getting updates from your mentor. She reported that you folded away from the critical path world CI 1859229 yesterday. And as I naturally expected, here you are. Who else knows we're back? Well, I only learned that you're actually back this moment. So I suppose nobody. We need to keep it that way for a while. Whatever for Emma, we don't know if we can trust him. As the curator looked astonished, Emma shot back. He's the only one we can trust. He got us our mortality cure and our implants, and we have to trust someone. Please tell me what this is about, the curator said. Emma held up her hand in the gesture that we used to indicate we want to use our implants to share a vision. It's not necessary, but it's curator etiquette. Probably because of the emergency protocol, our implants had recorded the moments before the hab ruptured in detail, and she played him the recording. I don't think I have ever seen him react to anything with so much emotion. We should share a drink, he said, sitting down heavily. He poured for us, and we downed shots of some exotic alien mixed liquor. <clears throat> this is a shameful day for our kind, he finally said. She is wrong about one thing. I considered you friends before I arranged what I hoped you would consider gifts. You did not need to be immortal or to have our powers to be worthy of my respect and admiration. I took you to the witnesses for selfish reasons. I did not want my friends to die so soon. And then I lobbied for you to receive implants so I could see what such amazing beings would do with the powers we come to take for granted after so much life. When you were mortal, you worked selflessly and at great personal risk to save a world that wasn't even your own. And you worked with one of us who showed you her true powers without begrudging her abilities. She was another who worked with me to bring you into our ranks. The Raider form Curator? Yes, she knew she was never in any danger because she could just fold herself away. But she was very impressed with your role in the situation. And she was very clear that she could not have saved Katagat on her own without your help. Well, someone doesn't appreciate us so much, and we will have to get to the bottom of that, as you suggest, very carefully. At the moment, this is probably the safest place for you in the galaxy, because I am the only one of my kind who will be coming here. There is agreement on both sides of the issue that whether you fail or succeed in this project, you should do it on your own. He poured us another round. On that topic, it's beginning to look like we'll fail, Emma said. We're not going to be able to selectively kill the giants fast enough to make a difference without also killing the rest of the ecosystem in different ways. But if you learn that lesson from trying, that is an excellent thing. It costs us nothing to let you try. And it is exactly the sort of lesson that that does not think you can learn. You used a word that didn't translate, I said. And you don't want to know the translation, he said evenly. Well, I guess it's lucky that she failed, I said. He stared into his drink. Luck had nothing to do with it. Her plan was very clever and it failed for two reasons. One was that she wasn't aware that your mortality cure was provided by the witnesses. If we had given you the cure, you would have been conscious but unable to do anything useful for 10 or 15 minutes. Your implant would not have attempted emulation until you lost consciousness and there was no other obvious avenue. But by then, you would have, been, you would have had very little time left, probably not enough to find the inhibitor and then a projectile to destroy it. And the other reason, none of us is really familiar with these emergency protocols. I would not have expected emulation to kick in to save you myself. There's so much we've forgotten about our own origins. And of course, once you were in emulation, you thought of putting a projectile at the in- at the inhibitor from outside its zone of influence. An obvious plan once it's been suggested, but another example of your genius as humans. I doubt any other living curator would have thought of it under similar circumstances. What would have happened if her scheme had worked, I asked. If my implant was emulating me, would that have continued? And what about Emma? If your bioforms had been destroyed, the threshold for attempting emulation would have been lowered again. These are very ancient protocols, which haven't been exercised in, oh, at least three or four billion Earth years. It's very hard to kill one of us at our current level of skill. Even with a low level of synchronization, the emulation would look and feel a lot like your biological self. It would just be lacking in details which weren't yet synchronized. Kind of like having a stroke, Emma said. It might be similar, yes. And like many stroke victims, you might well recover if there was enough for the emulator to work with. Wait a minute. If the emulator would be likely to bring us back, why did she even bother trying to assassinate us? She probably didn't think enough of your engrams would have been recorded at this early stage to support emulation. As I said, we have little recent experience with this sort of thing. If the emulation is supposed to be me, why can't I remember being emulated? Eventually, you will. Synchronizing your biological brain takes considerably longer than synchronizing the backup. Processes and synapses have to be grown, and it can't be accelerated. He left, and for a couple of days, we just laid low. We kept in touch with Zeke and the research teams, but tried not to do anything too public that might be recorded for posterity. And then my memories started to clarify. I remembered finding the inhibitor. I remembered navigating without my body at relativistic speeds. I remembered aiming the ice chunk and the careful calculation that would have doomed us if both if I had gotten it wrong. And then at two in the morning I shook Emma awake. Was it? I remembered more, I said. Wake up, I remember everything. I thought you already remembered pretty much everything. I know how the mortality cure works. Both the curators and the witnesses version is the same technology. I know everything necessary to implement either version. I know how the first nanites were made. I know how our implants are manufactured, and I know everything necessary to make more of them. These implants are repositories of all the curator's knowledge, and they usually lock out what you aren't personally supposed to need. But I think when I was in emulation, the emulation wasn't locked out. That emergency protocol that hasn't been exercised in billions of years just unlocked everything. When the emergency protocol was created, there weren't so many layers of security, and it just bypasses them all. And now my brain is synchronized, and it's not locked out either. She sat out. Tell me it's not April 1st, she said. Oh, no such luck, I said with a widening grin. I know the codes to call and unlock a fucking amplifier belt. Let me show you. I held up my hand, and when she made herself consciously receptive, I reached in and unlocked all of her blocks, too. Her eyes flew open as she realized what she now knew, and soon we were both grinning like ten-year-olds in a candy factory. Fuck yeah. (laughs) And that is where I had planned to end tonight's reading.
1: <laughs> roger, Roger, Roger. <laughs> I fucking love it. I fucking, I wanna go back though. <clears throat> uh, mm-hmm. I really like the imagery of the uh, shooting at the uh, gigantic monsters.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm I thought up, you might.
1: And <laughs> in, in my mind's eye, I, I don't know, I'm just, I was imagining more of it's in like a savannah like out in Africa and then like a mixture not quite as comical as Pacific Rim where they're like rainbow colored (laughs) but just that did did you ever see the first Pacific Rim yeah I saw both of them yeah the second one's a lot more kind of cartoonish the first one they do a really good job at uh at like at like making it feel like they're monsters Mm -hmm. no I was getting that feeling from it and then, of course, in my mind, I'm like, I'm like dialing in Dale. You have Dale going. No, the fifty won't work. You got to get like a. And I, I know, and I know what rifle you're talking about. There's also another one called the Anzio twenty, and it's a yeah. millimeter anti tank rifle. Um, fun,
0: fun, fun Reddit fact: the Lati was suggested to me by one of the readers.
1: Oh, really? Something a,
0: that they might try. It showed up in the comments.
1: Yeah, it is. It's that World <laughs> War two anti tank rifle.
0: So I had to, I read up on it and went, "Yep, that's what he would use." <laughs>
1: I like it, man. I'm yeah, it's, it definitely, it has Pacific rim feelings that you describe the cause Pacific rim. I think they captured like monster essence better than really any other movie. Like when the, yeah. when, they, when they're like, like you actually get the feeling of like, that's a <laughs> bestial, like tiny yeah. brain covered in armor. You're like this thing has this thing doesn't have a favorite color. It doesn't like music. It is there to fuck <laughs> and to murder. <laughs> yeah, I think you captured that really well. Not to not not to overshadow the the ending, but yeah. I think that I think that beginning was I like that.
0: I, yeah, I mentioned it briefly, and it will come. Uh, it'll be a little more explicit in uh, a, com- a couple of episodes that they affectionately call that big monster, murder saurus, murder saurus. Right.
1: <laughs> I like it. I was thinking, like, I would love to. I would love to see this all like animated.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's some and, and there's some even better image imagery on that line coming. That's it's. it's uh, we we have some fun stuff coming up. This was one of those things where I could kind of sense that the viewers were going to sleep. And you asked, why did you kill them? Well, it was to wake up the readers. Yeah. yeah. yeah so that they. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was a very Saturday serial thing to do, and, and one of the things my dad told me that always sunk in. It was, you know, of course they would always have like cliffhangers and the curators was very specifically inspired by Saturday matinee serials. uh, The way my dad described them to me from when he was a kid. And he told me about one where he, it was rocket man. And uh, the, at the end of one of the episodes, rocket man was falling and his, his rocket pack uh, was disabled and wouldn't come on. And that was where they left it. So, you left the theater wondering: Is Rocket Man going to fall to his death? And in the next episode, Rocket Man's rocket back just comes back on, and he flies off. Well,
1: because <laughs> this, this happened, this happened before, though, right? Where where she
0: died, and then it was like, it was yeah, the like the, uh, yeah, the spacecraft, yeah, the spaceship blew out. call yeah, yeah, yeah. That was where they learned exactly what the parameters of their vacuum defenses were, and that that they were different from the curators. Because she seemed to be dead, but in fact, her body had gone into self-preservation mode, and it took a few hours once she was back in a benign environment uh, for her body to undo all the protective measures and wake uh, and wake up.
1: Do you remember in Hawaii when there was that false missile alert, that false ICBM inbound alert back in like like 2017?
0: Yeah, I vaguely remember that. So it's like an
1: EMS to like everyone in like Oahu or whatever that like there was like an ICBM in. Oh yeah, battle. it was
0: the guy sent it out by mistake or something. I think. Yeah.
1: Um, and then where Edward Snowden worked, and it was actually a map factory in World War II. But there's like the there's like the Hawaii NSA command, or it's it's this huge <laughs> compound. It's like the Hawaii NORAD. It's okay. under it's under like a mountain of granite. Yeah. And it's for like all like Pacific eavesdropping everything. Yeah. It's in the
0: middle of the Pacific oceans.
1: Yeah. 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 And uh, there was a great, this is all tied together. There was a great like, uh, like Reddit conspiracy that there was like, uh, there was like uh, some like turf battles going on, like within the intelligence community and like one turf had control of like NORAD and Fort Meade. And they wanted the goods that were in like Hawaii because it wasn't just a backup. It was also like there was some other stuff stored there. And the only way to bypass all the security systems and have the Hawaii one do like an emergency uplink to NORAD was was mm-hmm. was at DEFCON 1. So the idea <laughs> was that the EMS was faked to drink. And obviously, it's, it's all just like, you know, it's fun fan fiction. Yeah. But that's kind of the imagery I got is just like bring it to the brink. And then that's how you bypass everything.
0: Well, and yeah, we're going to have more of, uh, more, more, learn more about the curator's early technology, particularly in books three and four. Uh, but yeah, basically it was, in, in fact, in the comments after that episode, one of the readers popped up and said, oh yeah, you always forget about these security things when you're doing, you know, you know, System upgrades and restorations and stuff. And you know, if you don't, you don't test all this stuff. You forget that it's there, and it comes and bites you in the ass. Ask me how I know. And it's like, yeah, I'll well, ask me how I know. I do software too, so this is yeah. basically a software like fuck that. up.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that was one of the better readings, Raj. That was.
0: Thank you. I, I've been yeah. Th- now you see why I say it. I've been waiting to read this to you since February. I mean, I, I really know, wanted I know, you to I eat-
1: know. I know.
0: <laughs> I know. I had a feeling you were gonna like this for multiple reasons.
1: And what's uh, what's over your shoulder on the on the back table? Those look like twenty millimeter shells. That or they're like Saturn V models. Yeah,
0: that's a twenty millimeter shell. Yeah, but it's a dummy shell. Yeah, yeah. And I bought these at a gun show in nineteen eighty eight. Back when it was fun to go to a gun show, even if you weren't really a gun person, because they had a lot of non-gun things. Mm -hmm. Actually, I have a third one of these, but it's holding up a book up there. So I think I paid a dollar a piece for these, and I bought them because they are almost comically penis substitutes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But they're not the best thing I bought at the gun show. (laughs) a light anti-tank weapon
1: and that's the thumbnail
0: (laughs) but it's harmless yeah it ain't got a bullet and it's been demilled it's been cut apart you know to to specification but uh rather hilariously when uh blackjack x visited our house for the first time and saw my office because you saw where i got this this lives on my desk behind mm-hmm. the computer and uh, as soon as he got out of earshot of me he buttonholed Elaine and went what the fuck Roger's got a fucking bazooka on his desk
1: <laughs> don't fuck around dude they're in hurricane season don't loot Roger's house
0: it's just like no I had the Wi-Fi router sitting on top of it for a while so it's just you know I, I, I paid 10 bucks for it I think it's awesome but I went to a gun show before the pandemic. The last time Elaine was out of town doing on, on a bird tour, uh, they had a gun show that weekend in Mandeville, and I went to it. And man, it's a lot less fun now. There's less mature, there's less merch that isn't like gun stuff specifically guns, yeah. You know, and it's a lot more politicized. Uh, it it just wasn't the same vibe. Uh, you know, there's a scene in the book Hannibal, where Hannibal Lecter, after he escapes in Silence of the Lambs, uh, he goes to a gun show because he wants good quality carbon steel knives to cook with. And they're not made anymore. So he goes to a gun show and finds a vendor who has them. There, there wasn't anyone with cookware at the Mandeville gun show. And it was a sizable gun show, too. But. Fake and gay. But yeah, there was there was uh, a, a lot of oh. Also, I didn't. Say this. this is this is where I stick my I voted stickers. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> that thing is fucking badass,
0: dude. It's cool. It's a fiberglass tube. I yeah. yeah I actually thought at one time because you know it's it really, it's really cool if you unfold the little yeah. thing here and, and of course this is all dusty and do that with it i had thought it would be kind of cool to maybe make a telescope out of it or something but then i realized uh first of all it's not straight anymore because when they glued it back together after demilling it they didn't glue it back straight it's kind of small and if I was like using this as a telescope, gonna and
1: you're going to be out on a roof aiming it at the sky.
0: Some good, some self-proclaimed good guy with a gun is going to see this and decide Roger. to take care of the situation. Somebody's going to,
1: yeah. Roger's <laughs> taking telephoto lens <laughs> images of uh, of Air Force One. It yeah. looks an awful lot like a fucking stinger. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's a anti tank.
1: No, no, it's no, not no.
0: even actually in-laws are even smaller than this thing now.
1: Do you know in um, fuck, what book was it? Um, Donovan, uh, Wild Bill Donovan, the f- head of the OSS, uh, first the the creator of the CIA. Um,
0: oh yeah, yeah, he was in the uh, Wild the Bill Good Donovan. Spy, I think was the movie. Or- Wild their-
1: Bill Donovan's the fucking man. He uh he actually sent some uh, guys just to prove that his guys could get reconnaissance of anything. They built a camera that looked like a sniper rifle. Not, not intentionally. It was just, that's how it looked. They had the scope. They had like the, and he actually had them go in uh up on a neighboring building by the white house. just to prove to F because he, he knew FDR personally that they could get pictures of anything. And he was like, it worked. We got up to the roof and told my guys like focused in. And they realized they were looking at Marines getting down on their knees. With the gun. <laughs> and then they like called it off. And like, while Bill made a call, he was like, they were getting ready to empty a belt in like downtown DC. They were like, uh, uh-uh, uh, brother. And, uh, yep. <laughs> but he was like, it worked. The camera worked. And it was just like, Jesus, they were like, look almost comically, like looking around and like, and then looking and they saw these Marines like getting down. And like, they're all like locking and loading. Um, <laughs> And then on another uh another thing Wild Bill did was because if that wasn't enough to prove to FDR that the OSS was worth it, he had the first silenced uh, pistol ever produced. And uh he went in, you know, brought it in, in his pocket and uh brought in a uh, i think like a bag of sand or something and he, he was always going in and out of the oval office so it's just whatever and he went in there and Guns. yeah well it was just like it'd be like if general mattis walked into the no no it's, it's
0: yeah, no one, no one's gonna put him make him go through the metal detector exactly. and,
1: and so uh wild bill walks in and fdr's uh you know sitting there talking to his secretary and they're both i don't know kind of like looking at whatever and uh wild bill goes into the to the goes into the the corner and puts the sandbag down and then empties the clip into the sandbag and it was so quiet that neither of them heard it (laughs) and then so she leaves and you know fdr is like bill what can i do for you and he goes up to him and he's got a sleeve around the barrel and he hands it to him like grip first and he's like mr president and he was like take a hold of this he was like be careful the barrel's still hot <laughs> I was like what do you mean and he was like he's like i just shot 10 like 10 bullets into the floor while you're talking to that secretary and it was to show him how dangerous yeah. this thing was and that actually led to like a huge bump in like uh like their budget was increased or something <laughs> and you can actually i guess go see that pistol in a museum but uh how the fuck did i could hear cameras bazookas cameras <laughs> yeah. cameras,
0: bazookas turned into cameras my brain's cooked
1: <laughs> um Raj. Let's, let's wrap out a
0: couple of my souvenirs from yeah i got i got i got layers there's more stuff you don't know about me
1: <laughs> i don't doubt it i don't doubt it roger um again man that was a great reading touche absolutely touche um
0: yeah uh yeah it's it's the pace is picking up now hmm. from uh the beginning of book two was kind of sort of reorienting after the end of one, but uh things are going to start happening at a much more regular pace now. As far as you know, moments like that where something big happens,
1: um, I like it. Um, I feel like I had something else to
0: say. I don't remember. Yeah, for for one thing, we don't have as much exposition to do because you've done a lot of the world building. Yeah, so we can get on with the story more. Uh, we know who the curators are now. And now, the the next phase, of course, is to figure out what happens. You know what they're going to do about the potentially bad curators, and the one that tried to kill them herself, because she's still out there. Bitch.
1: Why do I feel like I had something else to say? I don't know. I guess I I don't know. I guess podcast resume Monday or two. Ooh, check my calendar real quick just yeah. completely snug up on me yeah you're about to leave town um today is wednesday june 15th podcast resume Ooh, tuesday the 21st Huh. i don't know i had that many days oh wow, i <laughs> guess the podcast is a- off for a week yeah I don't know why, well, in my mind, I had I, in my mind that it was going to be two days. That's several days. Yeah,
0: six oh, days. Wow.
1: Well, that is where the eight hundred and forty-four episode library comes into handy. <laughs> oh, another thing, I thought you think would, might think was cool. So, uh, uh, just as someone that's like been here from the beginning, um, on YouTube you could always see total views, mm-hmm. and on Rumble like you can't do that, and so. I'd always just, like, for the last couple months, once a week, I would add up the top, like, 50 episodes and just assume that that was, like, roughly 80% of the views. On YouTube, it took two years. And then when I got banned, I had maxed out at, like, 350,000 total views since August of 2021. Really, August 29th, so September 2021 Mm -hmm. until now, Wednesday, June 15th. 2.8 Two point eight million views on Rumble. I found a way to go in and actually find. I'm an idiot. I've been trying. Damn, to, and I found it by accident. How to find total views: two point eight million in less than a year.
0: So yeah, you're doing all right for yourself over it's, here. And then you digs. It's it's
1: it's 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 kicking. It's um as of today, it's uh two million eight hundred seventy three thousand two hundred three views. So two point eight million since August or September. In 2022,
0: you're you're homing in on 10 times as many views on Rumble as you ever had on YouTube. In
1: 2022, (laughs) 2.3 million. So 2.3 of the 2.8. And so in 2022, we are averaging 14,252 views a day. I didn't know oh. any of this until like a week ago so this is like <laughs> if you can't tell this is like my new like pet toy. this is my new toy it's like going in and looking at everything yeah it's so that was definitely like a huge kind of like confidence boost of like oh it's fucking work it also removes all doubt in my mind that there was a thumb on the scale at youtube yeah it that just doesn't make sense nothing I, else makes sense
0: I, I wouldn't be surprised that that that's Something really it's, well, you know uh, Attrin shea the guy who made mm-hmm. the documentary about mopey he everyone complains that he's like criminally underviewed, and uh, you know for the quality of what he puts out and it's not just
1: a meme anymore. I think people are starting to realize that there's and I don't think it's entirely just like political like oh there no I think there's all it's 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 money if you're not the Tonight Show or Boeing yeah. or Nike. You're not getting, you're not getting anything.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I have a habit of going into YouTube every night and, and looking at the stuff that they recommend. You know, the algorithm, and there's a few people that they regularly, uh, you know, provide, you know, show me. And there are people whose shows that I like, which is why I keep watching them. But mm-hmm. uh, I noticed that, yeah, it's you know, there if they put something up i'll see a link to it you know three or four days later but if you know a new tonight show episode goes up then it's there within 15 minutes and uh but it's weird there's some things that show it's like uh there's a guy whose channel is i do cars and every week generally saturday night he takes apart a dead engine I mean, he buys a core and a core and takes it apart to find out why it's a core and not a functioning engine. Mm-hmm. Some of them have shit that's exploded in the crank case. Some of them have more subtle problems and all, but it's all, you know, it's I, I, I get a lot of it and his stuff goes up immediately. It's mm. like, I don't know what it is that he's doing, but completely neutral. It may be because he's a business because he has he has a. It's not so much a salvage business. You know, he sells the parts off these engines that he takes apart. You know, but you know, is it because he's a business they give him more cachet than
1: I don't you know. I don't I don't think so. In my in my humble opinion. I mean, I, I'm I'm not entirely sure. I can't
0: figure it out.
1: Yeah, I mean you see it with I mean Tim Dillon. I mean, I've always praised Tim Dillon. Fucking love him. I think he's the funniest man alive. When he first he'd been doing comedy for like ten years, and he he got on Rogan in like twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen. when he kind of popped, and his channel yeah. blew up. But in the last year, his channel is he. I mean, he is the highest earner on Patreon by far. Makes like makes like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a month on Patreon. Wow. Yeah, he's been doing that for well over a year now. I mean, he he just bought a house in like the Hamptons. Like he's he's blowing up, and but his subscriber count has gone to a trickle in like the last year, because Tim Dillon pulls no yeah. punches. He hates everybody, and he criticizes everybody. And yeah. his most recent episode where he said that the solution to the homeless problem should be putting everyone in a pot and boiling them and feeding them to other homeless people. A man, who,
0: a man who read Jonathan, who man who knows is Jonathan Swift. <laughs>
1: He put that up and now for the first time, if you go and click on like his recent episodes, it will be like you have to confirm your age. So you can see that he's starting to brush the wrong side of the. And I think people are starting to go, hold on. Yeah. Fucking Tim Dillon. This guy who hates everyone.
0: And it's not like anyone who goes to his channel doesn't know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's Tim Dillon. I mean, the show used to be called. It's part Dillon's of his Ghost. brand. It' his show. Little used to be called Tim Dylan's Dill- Going to Hell. I mean, he, yeah, it's. So yeah, I mean, it's.
0: it be like watching a, a George Carlin, and complaining that there's cursing.
1: Well, and that's what people are saying. People are like, <laughs> "Who the fuck is?" And like I, because I'm a total cuck, I still have YouTube Premium. Because I just like downloading documentaries and listening to them. If I'm not listening to an audiobook, <laughs> unfortunately, the well, primo place to still find old black and white Cold War documentaries is YouTube. Download yeah. it, keep them offline. Great for car trips. I can't download the most recent episode of Tim Bill, It will not let you.
0: Yeah, and and I I do get the th- the impression that some of this is guided by you know maybe via the, the I Do Cars channel is because. It's innocuous. Well, Some human being say. decided it's, it's entertaining. You know, it's educational and because a number of people, I've said in his comments that I've learned more about how, car, how, how engines work watching his channel than I ever knew from any other source.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and the, you know, but but it's uncontroversial.
1: Well, that's what I'm, it's completely neutral. No one, has neutral. It, no one is going to have
0: anything bad to say about it other than you're wrong about why that engine blew up. It was this instead of what you said. It's
1: like this. It's like the slow-mo guys. Yeah. Right? It, it, yeah. They, who's
0: going to complain about that?
1: Yeah. And it, so it, it, they, it.
0: you know, uh, but yeah, anybody who does anything and, and and, it, and it's in all of these big media companies though. And you never know where the landing pad is, is, uh, just, uh, it's, it's affecting anyone who tries selling, uh, you know, like if you wanted to uh, follow the lead of The Martian or Fifty Shades of Grey, self-publish your novel. Nowadays, where it's a little more uh, likely that you might be picked up by a publisher, Amazon is your venue for that now. You can do Lulu, but. I mainly am successful because I was, you know, I, I did Lulu when Lulu was it. Nobody, mm-hmm. their, Amazon hadn't gotten into self published books yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now Amazon is telling people all kinds of arbitrary rules that come out of nowhere, and their rating system is a, you know, you know their their search their search ranking thing is a complete mystery and no one knows why your rankings go to zero all of a sudden it's the same with google uh metafilter.com is one to this day one of the most highly regarded discussion sites on the web because they have paid moderation they've been doing it since the early aughts uh i was a prominent member there for about 10 years and then i got kicked off for not being liberal enough but seriously they're based in I, san francisco I, I know. it's it's but they now they had a section called ask metafilter where you could post a question and they had a lot of very smart well-connected people who could come in with legal scientific you know practical stuff to answer your questions And they got a lot of Google traffic and uh, off of search results linking to ask Metafilter results. And one day, about five years ago, their traffic with Google went, you know, decreased by a fact, you know, to like 20% of what it had been. And this was their primary source of income. And, With Google does not have any customer service. They have no recourse if your business is impacted by anything like this. Oh, yeah. And they were never. And this is one of the most prominent discussion sites on the Internet. They have a lot of people who are very interested in their fate and all. Nobody could get an answer to this day. They had to lay off two of their moderators. uh, And no one has any idea why that happened. Uh, You've got this little group, you know, of, you know, giant media companies and no one knows why they make decisions. And when they make a decision, no one knows, you you had on, on the self-published Amazon books thing, they had a huge, huge romance section, both gay and straight different genres there. And I knew a few people who were writing for both of those. And one day, Amazon comes out of nowhere and says, no more race play. Basically, no more stories about interracial relationships. Now, are we supposed to pretend that there's no such thing as an inter- interracial relationship? Are we not supposed to, uh, you know, because some of these were bodice rippers and stuff like that, are we not supposed to have power-based play across racial lines, because that's suggestive of slavery. No, they don't explain anything. It's just like, if they don't, you know, you know, you write your book, and put it up. And if they don't like it, boom, that's that. And, and they, they change the policy next week, if they decide that the way that they had it last week, wasn't actually working out for them. And, you know, it's that, that was just a thing that happened to come to mind, because somebody that I know, if they were affected by it, but uh, you know, it's like, so you've got all these little you know, and, and they're doing this little political dance. What issue do we not want to get involved with and be associated with and all, and, Oh, you're too close to that. Even though you're completely innocent of anything yourself, you just remind people. And all of a sudden you ain't got no traffic anymore.
1: The, the retarded rules are one thing but as you and i have said from the beginning a private company you're free to do what you want free to shoot yourself in the foot that's one thing it's dipshit squared when they don't even keep it consistent because at least let's say like i know i now know i now know that i can't use youtube i just know that like i just can't upload but at least i know it imagine if you're someone else and going well I do car videos. I don't, I'm don't. i not interviewing Dr. Malone. I'm not interviewing Dale Comstock. Mm-hmm. Whatever, I'm not interested in this. But if the rules are changing every week, you're now going, I don't have anything to do with that, but I don't even know if I'm in the clear. And the, so what's the problem with that? Well, as we're talking about, as I've been doing this podcast since December 12th, 2019, you have to like lay your foundations where you're going to be providing URLs. And as we both know, What happens when you get kicked? So now you're looking at like, am I about to pour? Like, I have no problem doing the long haul five years of work. I can't start doing that if I don't know if I'm allowed to stay here.
0: Right. You don't want to do three years of that five years and then have the rug pulled out from under you because some bean counter decided that you were a little too controversial for them or they just plain didn't like you and there's no accountability.
1: And then it's sometimes it's not even like political or something. Now it's just like, it's probably a bunch of these companies, probably Comedy Central going, Hey, we'll give you, we'll buy 5 million in stock, bump, bump our stuff at the top, kick off Tim Dillon. Yeah. Why wouldn't they?
0: So, or or another company saying he said something bad about us. We want him to go away. Yeah.
1: So it seems to be like a late stage capitalism type thing. Like this is Mm -hmm. probably the natural culmination of where this was going to go and i feel like with all things there will be some new technology that will be as decentralized to this as LimeWire and napster were in the early 2000s and then there will be a couple decades of wild west and then it will all coalesce and be perverted by big corporate and then it seems like that's the cycle of just and i feel like right wow. now we're at the end of a consolidation cycle
0: yeah well i mean that's what happened in the 90s and throughout the 2000s is it got wild west and then it's around 2010 it started consolidating
1: yeah so feels like we're due for a, uh, a wild west part two but um Raj, i gotta wrap this one up i gotta pack i still gotta go get groceries and shit I yeah. food. and
0: right. um, we done made it for some lost time
1: fuck yeah <laughs> roger williams author of my favorite book metamorphosis of prime intellect Seriously, go get it. It's that there's a reason why I say it's my favorite book. And as you can tell, Roger's an incredible author. Roger, I love you, brother. As always,
0: right. let me you let me along. know when we can do it again.
1: Yes, sir. I'll text this to you when it's up. It'll be up way later tonight because this is a long episode. So I have to export it through iMovie, which is somebody wants to buy me an eighty thousand dollar Mac Pro. We can get this quicker, but uh, I don't see that happening anytime soon, Roger Williams. Thank you so much, my man. Take care. Godspeed, everybody. Podcast resumes next Tuesday. And uh, there should be an interesting episode sometime next week, as Roger knows. Mm-hmm. cryptic foreshadowing. Woo! All right, everybody. Take care. God bless.